Thank you for joining me for another Quick Hits Conversation. Today, I would like to talk about swearing in the professional environment. Is it ever okay or is it always taboo? Sarah, kick us off. <laughs> well, this is so funny because I was really curious about a topic before popping on a camera. So, of course, I Googled it up and the first thing comes up is how to swear professionally. <laughs> Um, I, I personally um, have an interesting input into that one. Um, as a former athlete, you know, cursing is one of the expressions of passion and power and just when you're in the zone. Um, I also have experienced the very opposite side of the spectrum as a professional, you know, especially when you're working for somebody else, you watch how you talk, you uh, address people in a very specific manner and you don't allow your personality to come through mm. and then again as an entrepreneur um, being in this freedom of expression embracing especially for us women like just say what you need to say um, so I do believe personally that yeah it's it's okay but I, I say the context matters you know because if you're saying it just for the sake of saying it or to prove yourself something entirely different than uh, putting out an F word to make a point or to even as uh, Tony Robbins said in his uh, I'm not your guru like a pattern interrupt when somebody's uh, when you're working with somebody so I'm curious about what everybody else is thinking here. Um, yeah I would say that as a public relations professional uh, language is definitely very important to us so and in I guess in my case I think cursing even professional cursing is a huge no-no like mm -hmm. people can take um, your language in a completely opposite way to what you might actually mean and it's important to acknowledge that regardless of what industry um, or groups that you're with. Mm. Andy, what do you think? Oh, you know, it, 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 I, I think I'm going to just key in on the one word that Sarah used, because I, I, I think I agree about 99% with, with, with what Sarah mm -hmm. said. Um, and that's rare for me because I, I love disagreeing with people. But <laughs> it, it, it's that word context. Um, and that's really... The, the key there. It's how it's used, how it's done, when it's done, where it's done, the audience, whether it's interpersonal communications or professional communications. Um, I, I think really when you get down to it, um, from a legal perspective, you know, you, you want to look to a company's code of conduct to mm -hmm. see how that is addressed or whether it's addressed at all. And you know, I would always err on the side of caution. You, you, you don't want to start working for a company and the first thing you're doing is, is throwing down an F-bomb in, in a meeting, which, 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 which brings me to a wonderful story because uh, about, I don't know, 10, 15, might have even been 20 years ago, um, that actually happened. I was in a room where it was a, 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 a senior executive's first day and the first thing they did was drop an F-bomb and, and there was an HR complaint. Mm. Um, which struck me as odd, but um, it really, really depends on the context um, yeah. and, and when, where, how, et cetera. 
I feel like, so when I talk to clients, obviously it's very, can be very passionate. Like my clients be, and one-on-one, if my clients feel the need to articulate with swear words, I'm okay with that. Like, that's fine. They're not swearing at me. They're, it's a, an expression. That's fine. In a professional setting where there's other people and mm-hmm. it can be, I agree, it can be taken completely out of context. So 100 with, with, 100% with Andy there about err on the side of not. Because uh, if you use it, you're going, there's going to be a divide. Some people are going to be okay and some people aren't. And if, if you're trying to say, well, only my kind of people who are okay with cursing are going to, you know, if that's your kind of filter, okay. But be aware that it is a pretty hefty filter. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, I, I would say to a certain extent, I do agree that there is definitely a time and place for um, some colorful language, I'm going to put it. But yeah, no, primarily, no, no, no. I don't know if I would actually be able to work as productively with somebody that is constantly cursing like a sailor or um, just doesn't, you know, read the overall culture of what everyone's doing. Is there a difference between cursing as in like using it as an adjective or whatever in a sentence and actually being angry and cussing at someone? Yeah, I, 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 I definitely think so. And I think that goes back again to, to, to Sarah's usage of the word context. So if you are cursing at someone and it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's a direct, that's, that's a much more egregious type of offense mm. than if you are simply cursing in a, in a, in a passionate way to, to, to describe how you're feeling about a situation or something like that. It is, I think, never acceptable to be cursing at someone, mm. but mildly permissible to be cursing at a situation. But unpacking a little bit more the, the original question of, of, of is it okay to be cursing in a professional environment? What is the definition of a professional environment? Mm. I mean, if we're talking about an office setting where people are working, there are going to be different rules that will apply than if you're talking about on a factory floor mm. or a, a, a sales type of situation. It, it, again, Sarah, it was, really, it was really the perfect word, context. When I'm wondering, because I know um, I have a client who's an, the only female in a male environment, and men, the men in the environment can be very crass. And they've said to her, well, you're in a male environment. You just have to deal with it. That's, in my world, that's not appropriate. Exactly, yeah. And yeah, no, definitely. This double standard also that I quickly referenced and very generalized earlier when I think, like, mm-hmm. there's is nothing new. In fact, I think I just saw that in 14th century Pompeii, they found curse words in their writings. And then we have cursing like a sailor and everything else. But I think for women in particular, it was like this a no-no thing because you have to be ladylike. You have to present yourself in this mm-hmm. manner. You have to watch your language. You have to be likable. You have to censor yourself. Mm-hmm. So I have seen over the past couple of years, in particular in coaching business specifically, where there was this wave where dropping F-bombs left and right was almost a thing 
because a couple of uh, trailblazers almost gave permission to their clients. And now you could just see who is in their circles because all of a sudden they're dropping bombs left and right. And I was like, this is not who you are. Like you're acting because you could feel the energy of a person. You can feel the disconnect. Um, but if it comes genuinely, if you're really this like person who's uncensored and you throw it every once in a while, like I know I put it in a copy every once in a while when it's really charged, um, but not again, cursing at somebody, mm-hmm. but very rarely would I use it when speaking to the audience or if I would, um, if it's a conversation like on a podcast with somebody I'd say, hey, listen, we're going to use colorful language if you have little ears around or if you're a professional setting you might want to wait or put headphones in just being mindful of the audience well and uh, there's different levels of cursing right there's f-bombs which seem to be you know and some some other words that are just really harsh words and then there's some lighter curse words is that is that what it is? <laughs> it's funny <laughs> how the tolerance moves right <laughs> right like there's some things that you might be able to say oh me you know and that might be okay that might not so I think there's a spectrum too of of language and what's okay and what setting so I think back to the point we said at the top you have to be aware of your situation and where you are Mm -hmm. and the people that are around you I think that that's kind of the key takeaway and I love what you said Andrew err Mm -hmm. on the side of just don't do it during a we lost there (laughs) yeah that's all right oh there she's back we're almost out of time anyway, so it's all right. Yeah, if you're in a more professional meeting where it's, you know, people that are higher up above you, that's definitely a big no-no. Well, thank you for spending this time with me. I've appreciated exploring cursing. In, uh, in I can talk. I've enjoyed exploring cursing in a professional setting with you, and I look forward to our next conversation. Thank you for joining me for another Quick Hits Conversation. Today, I would like to talk about the damage that is caused when overachievement is expected. Karen, can you kick us off? I can. I mean, when you ask this question, the thing that came to mind with me, I'm a baby, I'm of the baby boomer generation, the bottom of that generation where you are not giving a gold, given a gold star for just showing up at camp or whatever it was. So I think what, you know, when I hear that question, my, what comes to mind for me is by doing that, whether it's an overachievement or anything where you're being given some kind of thing for not necessarily reaching a standard, are we impacting someone's intrinsic motivation? because that intrinsic motivation is one of those intangibles that we all look for as for our employees. Like, what are they, what are they motivated about? We want them to be motivated internally. We don't want to have to give them a gold star, a raise, a promotion, a bonus, or whatever to get them to perform. They should want to do it internally themselves. So I think that if you're just rewarding because you're rewarding, you damage that intrinsic motivation. But does that not speak to the point that we're making that if you reward people for overachieving, you be, overachievement becomes the point and then... Yeah, it's the same thing, in my opinion. Hmm. I have definitely seen situations where the overwork has become the new norm and trying to pair back to the, you know, the, the reasonable load now looks like, but you're slacking. You're not doing what you're supposed to be doing because we've overloaded you for so long that now that's the new expectation to your point. Yeah. I, I think it, 
it's very con context specific um, in terms of, you know, if, you, if you've got somebody doing a job which is inherently sort of quite short effort to reward and you're just measuring them on, <laughs> measuring them on the numbers and something like that, then, which is, a, which is the most common situation where you, you get people into sort of an overwork situation. Um, that is inherently unhealthy. And, you know, there's a reason why, for example, in the European Union, we have the working time directive to try and stop that kind of thing happening. Mm. Um, where you've got a more complex job, like, say, a, somebody doing a complex B2B sale or something like that, it's very difficult to know what achievement is anyway. You know, what is the right bar? And you quite often get situations where managers just increase the bar every year until the poor person collapses and resigns and goes somewhere else or is perceived to be failing because they're not meeting the new standards. Mm. Um, but I think it's very, it's very context specific. I don't think you can be um, generalist about it, even down to like the motivation stuff. You know, um, Some people don't care what other people think. But for <laughs> other people, it's absolutely the most important thing in the world. So yeah, I guess context I matters. I have a client right now who is in this situation in that there's been this level of overachievement for so long that now it's expected and she can no longer meet it. It's just become unbearable but she doesn't know how to basically say, this is untenable, I can't do this anymore. But I think that a perfect example of that is kind of what went on with Simone Biles. Mm. She, knew, she knew her own boundaries and safety, mm. but yet all of the, I mean, like she's the perfect example of an overachiever, but yet all the negativity she got about that, about her making decisions that are specific to what is right for her in her scenario, you know, we really have to look at by, you know, like I remember in my corporate career, you're constantly, oh, absorbing other people's jobs kind of per mm -hmm. se, but you're not necessarily ever rewarded for it. And then the minute you say something about it, you're just whining. So I think that in the corp, you know, back to what Simon was saying, contextually in the corporate world, that's kind of my experience of how, how that constantly rewarding somebody or not rewarding them for overachieving with them thinking like in my mind I'm intrinsically motivated by the idea of overachieving so when you know that that carrot keeps being dangled you keep working and working and working until you just can't and that really ultimately is what you're saying Robin yeah I think from the employee side the solution that seems to be the most tenable is have the conversation and uh, with the assumption that it's going to go badly and you're going to be changing positions to find a new role that is scaled appropriately. From the management side, I see it as uh, an actual failure on the management side and what is in a better approach is having that conversation. When you are lauding their achievements, how do we also include in that conversation very clearly, here are the boundaries that we should be maintaining, right? If we let our employees burn themselves out, that's our fault. Yeah. I have another client whose corporation does not allow emails between 3 p.m. on Friday and 10 a.m. on Monday. They shut down the email. Awesome. Server. I love it. Yeah. So I love it until I'm working over the weekend and I can't get an email, but, <laughs> but, but I, mean, like, I love that we're, that company setting the tone 
and the, you know, putting a kind of basically, this is our philosophy. This is our, you know, brand per se. I love that. I, I violently disagree. I think that okay. if you have to put that kind of policy in, you failed. Oh, because no you've, you've created a culture where people can't say no. Yeah. Um, you should be able to send an email on a Sunday morning and whoever receives it should be able to go, I'm not going to deal with that now. And sure. that it should be safe to do so. And if they can't say that, then I suspect there's lots of other things going on where they're feeling pressure to overwork. Because um, I do feel like there is a certain amount of pressure. Like, let's say I do send an email on Saturday morning and you get it, Simon, and you're like, well, but if I don't answer it, then it looks like she's working and I'm not. And then that looks bad. And so let me just answer it. And so you end up with this kind of creep thing. And that's what, that's what you got to fix. How? How do we fix that? Uh, I think psychological safety would be a huge thing to be able to, for people to feel safe, not to participate in that. Cause of course the other thing is, you know, we're all about flexible working, especially with COVID times and that sort of thing. Some people may be working on a Saturday so they can take Monday off. Hmm. Um, you know, so I, I, it is down to conversations. Do you and see respect. that happening a lot over here, Robin? With any, like, I I rare I rarely hear people talking about the ideal flexible working environment where you could choose to take the Monday off and not have it impact the rest of the team and all that. Everybody continues, and you're not getting fifty thousand emails over that day that you take off. That's what's supposed to be your day off, but it's really not because everybody else is working. You know, it's like. It, it has to come down to leadership. Leadership has to set the tone for that. If they, if they continue to set the tone by sending emails and expecting you to answer, then that tells you what, they're, what they you know, promote and what they want. And I think that second aspect is the key. What is the expectation that's set? Yeah. I have worked in environments that are global, that are 100% remote, where yes, some people are working over the weekend for that specific reason. We're taking other days off during the week. Um, the time zones are a thing. You can't expect immediate responses. Mm. You know, my attitude had always been in that environment to make sure that there's a message waiting for the person when they're going to be coming online, mm. right? If I know that I'm out of sync, great, let's do it so that they have the option to address that when they see fit in their particular schedule. But it was that I, I felt like I had the permission to ignore things as needed and to cue things up for other people to do at their own pace. Yeah. But are you truly ignoring it? I mean, like, I th that, like when I heard the word ignore, I felt like it was not, I understand where you're coming from, but, but at the same time, should we have to be forced into this predicament where we have to make decisions knowing it can impact you know, our work reputation. Yes, we're adults. <laughs> and we filter, we filter the world around us all the time. So why would we not filter at work? And you don't you respond to every sound and yeah. sight that you see. So, But I do and, think that and, the expectation of the corporate world, at least in the U.S., is that. It is and exactly that's what, needs what fixing. I'm describing. Yeah. And, and that's what needs fixing. Because if that's happening, other bad things will be happening too. Yeah, because here in the U.S., I can definitely say that with COVID and the global economy, people in the U.S. are expected to work all crazy hours to cover cover all the time zones. And that is our 10 minutes, so I'm going to have to cut us off there. Super complicated topic. I appreciate you guys putting in the effort to try and have this conversation in 10 minutes, and we'll have to do it again real soon.
Thank you for joining me for another Quick Hits Conversation. Today I would like to talk about how do you know that your goals are actually your goals? Karen, go first. You know, it's an interesting conversation just about goals in general because we've all been trained on everybody needs to set goals. And if you think about it from birth, we have had goals. We need to walk. We need to talk. We need to do all this stuff. So goals are actually kind of ingrained in us. But some of us aren't really good about setting goals, measuring goals and blah, blah, blah. And I think that that's how you kind of know is when you start to measure how closely or how, you know, have you reached that goal? And if you, you know, we always talk about goals need to be measurable. And if your goal is not measurable and it's much more kind of loose based, then it's harder to know whether that's really your goal or just a goal of society, because I think that we are often kind of peer pressured and, you know, into behaviors, into thought processes. And so it, it can be very, very difficult to determine what your goal is versus somebody else's goal. And I think that comes down to the individual and the strength and knowledge that your compass is pointing in the right direction. Mm -hmm. and, um, and that internal compass is what really guides you. But I think that the one thing I want to say about goals is that <laughs> I think we get too wrapped up in the goal and not realizing that, hey, you can reroute if you want. If, it, if, the, if, if you're heading a direction that's not looking like your goal, reroute. That's okay. Nobody says you can't. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think I think there's a huge amount there. I, I totally agree with particularly about really knowing is it my goal or is it someone else's? And I, I was thinking about this and thought from a psychology point of view, there's you would always prefer somebody's pursuing an intrinsic goal. I mean, a big wanting to walk is pretty intrinsic I want to be over there and they just keep going at it and if it's intrinsic to you in other words it's in line with your values and it's making you feel more competent and making you feel more connected with people it's going you're going to keep pursuing that goal mm -hmm. if it's someone else's goal and it gets a wee bit hard perhaps the boss set the goal and it gets a bit hard it's easy to see the enthusiasm wane a lot quicker than if it's really what you want to do. So I, I think it's worth possibly drawing a distinction between goals and targets, you know, oh. you know, well, you know, talking about if your boss set a goal and things like that, you know, for me that that's your boss saying go in this direction and you might have some performance metric or target around it. Goals for me are more personal, should we say. Mm. Um, and I, I know this is going to be an unpopular decision but I, or, or, or um, view, but I really worry about goal setting. Everyone's advising everyone to set goals and stretch goals and that sort of thing. And you, you've kind of both said it in terms of um, you should be able to adjust your goals, but people aren't told that. You know, you should, like, you should aim, but you should also adjust. Um, and... Mm -hmm. If I don't feel I can adjust a goal or whatever I'm going for, it's probably somebody else's and I should probably ignore it. Yeah, this came up for me because I have a client who's in her 40s and she's just starting to realize that everything that she's achieved in her life was because it's what her father expected her to do. And now she's trying to figure out, well, who am I and what do I want and what does that look like? And the, the challenge she's having is that she still has that parental voice saying, well, you should and how come? And this is what achievement looks like. And so she's trying to figure out, well, what are my goals 
as opposed to what society or my father or anyone else has expected me to be. And she doesn't really have that voice. How do you find that voice? But I think that you brought up a really good point that I wanted to mention is that there's a cultural basis foundation to this as well, Mm. because you look at, you know, here in the United States, arranged marriages are not a thing, right? And arranged marriages are typically about somebody else's goal, the family's goal, you know, that kind of thing. And so as an individual, you just go along. But in the United States, we would never never go for that kind of a thing. Even as second and third generations, you see that conflict that occurs when the family has a goal, but the individual has become Americanized per se. Mm. And I think that that voice, as you say, I thought there was a really important word you said there, Robin, which is the should. Mm. When you should, you pretty well know it's someone else's. Um, If it's Mm then you know it's yours and it's the voice that's saying want to. And, and I, I think for your client, I think the big thing is finding, uh, as you say, getting rid of the word goal. I'm, I'm with you there, which I never thought I'd say as a coach, we are always doing goals. But it's the direction, it's the things that make you feel. And finding that thing that really is worth getting up for on Monday morning, that's mm-hmm. the goal you want to do. Whereas... I should and not, you're getting yourself out of bed on Monday morning because you have to. I tell clients regularly, stop same. shooting on yourself. Mm. Yeah, why don't they just do what makes them feel good? You know? <laughs> and you know stop what? doing that's, it. Marie Kono or whatever. Say, you know. But how do you how do you do that if you have all of this like duty and responsibility and all these layers? How do you find yourself under that? So, so that's not goals. We've talked a lot about personal goals Mm -hmm. and I kind of shifted this a little towards that professional side a little bit because they are there are two distinct things going on Mm -hmm. and in my opinion you kind of want to line up those a little bit right your personal and your professional goals and usually those professional goals start kind of in our younger years as far as a career direction that we're headed and you know our my parents generation the idea was that you were in that occupation your whole life well that's not how it is today so things have shifted simon you were saying that you feel like unpeeling those layers isn't about goals can you say more about that Uh, um clearly you your client or whoever the, the issue is is more about societal expectations and they've lost themselves mm. and it'll be a bigger thing than just goals it'll mm. be the way they live their life the way they dress i would suspect you know i'm no coach or psychologist but i suspect it's more than about goals and it might be i i was at a, a some a, a retreat once and uh, uh someone was doing a piece of work and, and that involved writing down their life goals putting them on a hay bale next to them and then getting inside this whirly gig thing and moving around and looking at the problem and uh she did this for about five minutes and then said i've got it fine i'm done and uh got off the whirly gig picked up the goals and burnt them and that was the release she needed and i think that's that might be the starting point (laughs) is to or is or is to move towards realizing that you're not beholden to anybody else Mm. and then you and only then can you start talking about what you want to do Yeah, I love the point that Rosie made about should, and if you're using the word should, it's probably somebody else's. 
and recognizing and then burning them. That's like, that's a great idea. Like just releasing yourself from all mm. those shoulds, I think is a good, good way to recognize if your goals are your goals. And, and I think what we're saying is there's an emotional component here to being happy and feeling fulfilled. Yeah. Yes. And I think it's really important that, that, that people got both, it's got to be fun to do, but a really meaningful goal isn't fun all, all the time. Mm. Uh, some of the most meaningful things we do in life are pretty tough at times, but the satisfaction and the sense of purpose in life that those can bring you is a deep, long-lasting satisfaction. And so it's satisfying needs about expressing ourselves uh, as well as actually getting to be ourselves. And it's, uh, you know, if I, I going to talk to your client, I, I would love to ask her, um, what it is she, she wants, her goal is to please her parents. What is it going to be next? And how is she going to put that want into a context now for her? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, I think that... it's just as important to note that I recall a certain point in my career where I had reached what I thought was the pinnacle and then I was kind of lost. And so that happens to the people who are so used to setting goals and reaching goals and reaching that eventually you go like, is this all there is, is just setting goals and reaching? And then when you don't have a goal, your life feels a little empty. At least that's how I felt. Mm. It's a drug, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. And I, I think it's, we find the same, like you set sales guys targets. You know, the only thing is to ratchet it up. And everyone knows it's a silly game. You know, really what you want is, are you doing the best with what you've got? You yeah. know, are you succeeding or winning? But not... Yeah. So that's our 10 mm. minutes. I, I love the idea of goals being less about duty and more about happiness. I think that that's a great way to look at it. And I thank so much. Thank you so much for having this conversation with me. It's been very enlightening and I look forward to doing it again very soon.